Oh, this is going to be a good one. You're listening to Pete the Planner. This is Pete the Planner, and this is my show. Hello. <laughs> I thought I'd start new this week. Hi. Damien Dunn joins yeah. me again. Uh, Director of Personal Financial Strategies at Your Money Line. Here's how the show works. I started weird this week. Sorry, guys. I'm in a weird mood. Um, here's how the show works. You email us, askpete at petetheplanner.com, and we change your life. Sounds great. It seems a little promissory. Mm. Basically, we answer financial questions. We don't have things to sell you, so don't... like. You know, I'm going to give you a question, but then I want you to call me on Monday, set an appointment. I'm going to come in. I'm going to talk you out of your money. That's not what we do. We just answer your question, and it's somewhat entertaining. I hope. This week, the first question is from Linda. Linda says, hi, Pete. I'm a new listener. I'm 55. Not that new. You're 55. Oh, wow. (laughs) I feel like I'm... And my husband is also 55 years old. I'm trying to evaluate our retirement numbers. Would love your perspective. We are so one, two, five O's ready to ditch corporate life, but are making good money. So it's hard to walk away. Both of our jobs are very stressful. And I'm now at the age where quality of life is quickly becoming more important. I've read a lot about reading your magic number. That's a good question. I would love to talk about magic numbers. Maybe next segment. Sure. And uh, about withdrawal rates. But I never read about tax implications on that magic number. And of course, we all know that portfolios could decline tomorrow. Hopefully, we'll not be in the sequence of return nightmare. Here's our scenario. Liquid cash reserves and a high-yield online savings account, $200,000. Retirement accounts pre-tax, $1.1 million dollars Roth retirement accounts two hundred thousand dollars other investment accounts five hundred thousand dollars home equity three hundred and fifty thousand dollars in the early years we were hoping for an income of one hundred thousand dollars how are we looking currently are you doing this math over there Damien nope I was looking up uh, trying to get a determination on where this person might live oh based on their their area code yeah I know it's not nearly as foolproof as it used to be but it's the best we got. Wouldn't it make more sense to do the math? Probably, but what's <laughs> okay. the fun? You're, you're so much better at math. And how do we incorporate future Social Security benefits into this equation as that will kick in and take a big burden off of our drawdown? We would uh, make somewhere in the $55,000 range for Social Security. We are both in sales, so our income can vary, but I would say our average is one hundred sixty to $200,000 per year right now. Thanks, and i really enjoying your show. Okay. All right, let's dig through some stuff here. They're 55. So for them to shut it down early, um, let's say we gave her an answer and she shut it down right now, they'd have four and a half years to survive without dipping into any permanent basis, their qualified assets. Yes. We should probably explain that. Yeah, so qualified assets, uh, things like 401k, IRA, Uh, Roth IRA, you need to be 59 and a half to be able to withdraw money from those accounts without uh, getting a penalty, 10% penalty. Do you think that age will ever change? Have you ever thought about that? I haven't. That's an interesting question. Is it my first? Today. Okay. Um, Because here's the potential thing that could change that. I don't know if you've noticed, but the government seems to need money. I I hadn't noticed. So... If if they need to uh, get a little bit more of that money, they might change the withdrawal rate or the uh, the day that uh, you can start accessing that money penalty free 
in one direction or the other to potentially collect some more fees. Yeah, I can see that happening. They might. Yeah. Not that I would think they would do something as underhanded as that, change the rules on people that they've been playing by for years and years. You know, this person's situation is interesting because, not that I'm ignoring what you just said, but it does seem that way. And in practice, I am. Um, They got a lot of money, $1.8 million by my math. Um, I'm excluding the $200,000 in their savings account. Okay. But in order to tap it the way you would need to tap it to create a stream of retirement income, they would put themselves in a rough spot because they can't tap at all. They can really only tap the investment accounts and then take their contributions out of the Roth retirement accounts. So there's 1.1 million that they would have to theoretically leave alone for four and a half years Mm -hmm. if they were trying to retire now. Now, I get the feeling they're not trying to retire right now. I think she's just sort of beginning to test the waters a little bit. I think the bigger issue here is is to try to understand the tax implications of what they're doing. So let's go through and, and see what's taxed and what's not uh, of within within their portfolio. Their liquid cash reserves of 200,000, it's in a high yield online savings account. Here's the thing, it currently is being taxed on the growth in that account, so it has current tax implications, but there aren't any specific um tax implications when they go to take money out of that account because it, it's already money they've paid tax on, right? And by the way, good on you, Linda, for having that in a high-yield savings account in uh, an online um, bank. It, it, it's something that a lot of people don't realize is available out there, and they're sitting, uh, if they've got an emergency fund in a, a savings account at their local bank, and they're making it. You know, 2.02% a year when they yeah. could be, have it uh, online and have access to the money within two days and, and make uh, nearly 2%. Retirement accounts, $1.1 million. Those are pre-tax. So here's the, the- thing, Dame. They're going to have to pay tax to get money out of those things. Yep. And they can't start really doing it until 59 and a half without activating all sorts of special levers. Uh, so there's some major tax implications there. Absolutely. Especially based on what sort of other income sources they're going to take, what Social Security looks like. I mean, they're going to need an active tax strategy to make sure that they are not flying into another bracket because of all the money coming out of that thing. We talk about diversifying your tax base in retirement, which means having pre-tax and post-tax retirement money available. That Roth IRA money, that $200,000, that is the diversification of their tax base in retirement. But it is, I don't know, I'm trying to do the math on the fly, 20%, less than 20% mm-hmm. of their uh, retirement money. I mean, it's great that they don't have to pay tax when they withdraw that 200000 but if they want to try to retire prior to 59 and a half, they're going to be grabbing that money out hand over fist. Yeah, they can always access the contributions uh, tax-free, which uh, who knows how much of that 200 k is is accessible uh, for them right now. But it, it would be a potential location they could grab some. The investment account's at 500000 I assume they're in a tax-sensitive vehicle of some sort based on the structure of everything else she has going on. So, Linda, I would assume you're not paying a ton of capital gains taxes and things as those investments grow. You may have some tax loss harvesting going on or something. 
Um, but when you take money out of those accounts for whatever reason, you there are no additional tax implications for the most part. There might be little things here or there. Now, I will say this. If you took any of that $500,000 and put it into an annuity, mm-hmm. there would be tax implications of making withdrawal. So as long as that 500000 is not annuity money, you are good to go from a tax standpoint. Home equity, I'm just leaving out of the equation. If you were a reverse mortgage salesman, you wouldn't. Oh, Damien. Oh, Damien. Now we've just lost that listener. Yeah, well. All right, so what do you think? I mean, first of all, I don't think retirement prior to 59 and a half would bring them comfort from a financial perspective. No, I think you got to stick it out. So at least 59 and a half. But then you start to look at the, you know, then it gets into real hardcore financial planning. When do you retire then 60 and then take social security at 62 and, Mm -hmm. but then it gets into their health and longevity Mm -hmm. and all of that. If they're going to try to retire early and these are the assets, I don't know. Part of me says, Retire at 60, take Social Security at 62. Um, and look at the sequence of return nightmare that she's talking about. Try and figure out, uh, can you handle it if there if you do have that nightmare scenario? Uh, we have 20 seconds left. Any chance you can explain what that means? No chance at all. All right, so coming up after the break, we will d- describe to you what the nightmare sequence of uh, return is, and uh, we'll talk about that. If you want to email us, do so. Ask Pete at PeteThePlanner.com. Then fun with data. I think that's what we're going to call it. Let's go for it. Fun with data, Damien Dunn, Peter Dunn, Dunn did it. This is the show. (laughs) Back on the Pete the Planner show. It's my dad's birthday. Just realized that during the break. Happy birthday, dad. And I say that. Um, to you here on the radio, knowing that you're not listening. Happy happy birthday. Happy birthday to someone not listening. And I don't mean that judgmentally. Um, You got better things to do. Yeah. And uh, you don't need to listen to my voice. Consider you not listening our gift to you. Yeah, I like that. But you said ours, though he is also your father. Not not my dad. No relation. I know people think we are, despite our... People actually don't believe that we're not related. we are not. We are absolutely not related. Uh, Before the break, we talked about the nightmare sequence of return, uh, or nightmare return sequence. Help us understand Mm -hmm. what that means. So if you were to retire today, and the markets were to go down uh, for, say, the next three years, uh, similar to a return that we had... Um, not that long ago, to be perfectly honest, where it maybe goes down 30% one year, another 25% the next year. If you were to retire today and that were to happen, holy smokes, your assets and your retirement plan are under some serious stress at that point. Because if your withdrawal rate, your safe withdrawal rate that you had planned on taking uh, becomes maybe unmanageable for you in some cases. So a nightmare sequence of returns is talking about the return on the the investments that you've got set up and queued up to take care of you in retirement. What a nightmare. It is, and there's nothing you can do about it other than structure your portfolio correctly. To, to close the loop on Linda, um, I would assume they have a financial advisor. Is that a weird assumption? I mean, you and I should never assume people have a financial advisor, but the words she's using... Mm-hmm. Very intelligent investor. They either study it or they have a good advisor. Based on her email and, and some of the things that she said she was studying and reading about, yeah. um, 
first of all, leave the assets out of it. That's the per type of person I would have wanted to work with because yeah. they are actively interested in pursuing what they want to do. Yeah, that's a, it goes to last week's show. Um, the investments are not the issue here. It's the yeah. financial planning. This is a classic financial planning issue, not an investment issue. Yeah. 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 All right. Um, this past week or two weeks ago, I don't know the timing here. I don't remember. You and I decided to, actually I decided and then you reluctantly agreed, let's dig into the Bureau of Labor Statistics and have fun with data. Fun. Do you remember the exchange we had on Slack? I tried to ignore it. Yeah, I know. I noticed. Uh, but basically I want to know, since the Bureau of Labor Statistics has been tracking household expenditures, I want to know how we've culturally changed, forced or otherwise, uh, how we spend money, how we spend whatever money is available to us, what percent of that money is going to different areas over time. Okay, so for instance, let's go back to the first year on record that this data is available to us, or, we, or at least we found it, 1984. What were you doing in 1984? Man, what was I doing? Uh, kindergarten. Yeah, so uh, reading books, playing baseball, playing a lot of golf. Yeah. Um, having time of my life. I man. had to go to the principal's office three times in my schooling. Kindergarten was one of them. A girl at recess kissed me, oh. a girl named Nadia. Were there cooties involved? I don't know. And I, I, I slapped her. Whoa. She assaulted me. Whoa. It was some, it, but she kissed me and I just, I, I slapped her and I go to the office. Um, and that was one of the three. And over the next few months on the show, I will re reveal the other two principal office did, moments. Did she get in trouble for kissing you? I don't remember. They couldn't wake her up. I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> that oh, seems like it's, wow. I'm just kidding. I was really strong. Yeah. That seems like a joke you don't want to make. Okay, 1984. What am I doing? 1984. Uh, the average annual expenditures. People spent $21,975 on average as a household. That's what they spent. We're not dealing with taxes. We're talking about buying stuff and services. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, 3290 of that was on food. And $6,674 of that was on housing. So we did the math. What's the, what's the percentage there? Um, we, we, we did we, it we, we, Did we do the math? I thought we did the math. Anyway, here's how this has changed. The, the latest data available is 2017. The biggest change of all of our expenditures over this time frame, like what is the category that has increased the most as a percentage of what we spend is education. 392% increase in spending in, uh, since 1984 as of 2017. A giant increase. Now, there's, there's a lot of reasons here. Uh, the cost of education being the primary one, um, and then this is a weird way to talk about this, but there's the popularity of student loans and people's cultural willingness to take on more student loans. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a hard thing to talk about, Damien, because... Yes, education is more expensive, so to buy it, you have to pay for more money. But it has become culturally acceptable to spend more money and culturally acceptable to spend money you don't have on education. At, at one time, it just wasn't, but it also wasn't an option. Yeah, I, I don't think there was quite the push to go to college in, in 
the, or the mid '80s. I, of course, I don't know about you, but I was getting letters in kindergarten about trying to go to college. <laughs> Were you? No, not at all. But now um, there's the everyone. Yeah, everybody's. Well, you know what? That, that's actually changed somewhat too, because I, I was of the same mindset that everybody was encouraged to go to college. And with some of the conversations I've had, uh, being in uh, local high schools, teaching JA classes and whatnot. Junior, um, junior achievement. Junior achievement. Sorry, great program. Um, some of the the schools, the local schools, are actually recognizing that college isn't the right choice for everybody, which, as weird as this may seem, warms my heart that they're not just pushing blindly, pushing kids blindly towards college. The next major item that has increased, and I love that my uh, Google just logged me out of my account, healthcare is number two. The, the second largest increase since 1984 of household expenditures is healthcare um, with a three hundred and what seventy two percent increase or something like that? Yeah, um, actually, as a part of our our monthly expense or annual expenditures, how much we were spending as uh, those years happen. In eighty four, it was around four and three quarters percent of our our annual income was going towards healthcare. Two thousand seventeen is up to eight point two. That's huge. That's a huge increase. Yeah. It's almost a 70, what, 72% increase or something like yeah. that. Um, there were some things that went down. <laughs> reading. <Yeah. laughs> we spend 16% less on reading than we did in 1984. I'd like to say that's like the internet. Based, based on the internet, yeah. Right? I mean, in 1984, to not the book, the year. In 1984, you had to like get Newsweek and Time delivered to your house and read the newspaper. Yeah. Now you pull up your iPad. Yeah. I, there's, you know, you've got all sorts of uh, information available to you on the internet. And for better or worse, most of it's free. You get what you pay for, obviously. But it's there and it's available and you can consume it. No, I, yeah, I'll just stay there. Um, I think what also is interesting, um, as a measure of what percentage of our income is spent on particular categories, transportation has gone down, right? The cost of transportation has gone up, but as it relates to being a, as a percentage of your total expenditures, it's gone down. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple pretty obvious reasons. The, the first is the cost of fuel. Mm -hmm. um, and the second is fuel efficiency. Mm -hmm. Right, we our cars are a lot more fuel efficient than they used to be, considerably more, and and a lot of that is due to regulation. It's worth noting. Yeah, for you know whether or not you agree with uh, the government trying to mandate fuel efficiency standards, it is paying off in our monthly budgets on uh, you know actually all across all across the spectrum. I think that one of the things they track here that makes me laugh is tobacco products and smoking supplies. Mm -hmm. We spend 45% more on tobacco products and smoking supplies as the average household since we, than we did in 1984, which is a little surprising, but I think it has to do with taxes. And taxes, whatnot. for sure. All right, coming up after the break, uh, more of the show. We're going to talk about the ultimate gift to give a new loved one. That's on the Pete the Planner Show. I'm Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner show. Damien does not know what the next segment's about. No idea. I teased it going into the break. The gift you can give a new loved one. 
I, I'm waiting. Okay, so as I begin to read this email from Nathan, it's going to seem like I'm reading this email so that I can verbally display the praise that I was given. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. But it's not. But I know now that we've set it up this way that you're thinking, he's just reading this so people think, oh, he's great. I don't feel that way. I mean, I do. Not the point, though, okay? Yeah. I'm reading this because there's a deeper message into it, but you're going to have to wade through my praise. All right. <laughs> Are you... Everybody ready? <laughs> Hi, Pete. Long-time Twitter follower. First-time emailer. Oh. Hi. I like that. We've taken it to the next level. Long-form Twitter. Yeah. Uh, this article, which he linked with a hyperlink. Wow. On accumulating money changed my life permanently and for the better. Was it one of your articles? Yeah, it was one of mine. Oh, I mean, okay. that's where we really need uh, to get okay. it. It's at PeteThePlanner.com. Okay. I'm not going to tell everyone what it is. I will later. I eventually found other articles on your site, like paying down uh, debt with the momentum method. There you go. Well, funny. All right. Funny. We've had this discussion yeah. recently about the effectiveness of the momentum method, your monthly budget worksheet, et cetera. And I can't thank you enough for posting these simple methods for free uh, and writing a few funny comments that suddenly made me feel like it was okay to acknowledge the financial situation I was in. Fantastic. Okay. So, I, look, I, this praise seems warranted. Yeah. I mean, that, that is, that's nothing superfluous. That, that is what we do. Yeah. Guys, I think we have to give it to him on this one. I, I agree. It's simple. This is why he created this. It's simple. It's free. And now it sounds like an infomercial. Yeah, a little bit. Where's Ron? It's simple. It's free. And it'll make you laugh. I have to admit. Oh, back to it. I have to admit I didn't follow the momentum method to a T. And uh, as I was also saving for an engagement ring at the time. But starting in January 2017 in timeout. That's okay if you don't follow the momentum method to a T. Use it as a structure. See what works for you as long as you get the job done. Mm -hmm. But starting in January of 2017, so just over two years ago, I had $13,500 in debt spread over five different accounts with no emergency savings. Yikes. Mm. By May of 2018, the debt was completely gone. And I now have $10,000 in emergency savings. And my fiancé... And I are getting married this Saturday. And, and ooh. Are getting ready to place a sizable down payment for our first home together. I'd like to offer a sincere moment of gratitude. Blah, 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 blah. There's a lot of praise that no one okay. needs. Nathan. Okay, so I bring this up. I probably shouldn't have blah, blah through the last part because it actually has an important aspect to this. Um, I think the best thing you can do in any relationship especially a, a new relationship in the sense that you're about to be married to someone for the rest of your life, uh, ideally, yeah. is to bring financial stability to the situation. It, it is the ultimate act of love to say, okay, I want to marry this person. I got to get my stuff together. Let's get my stuff together. My stuff is now together, and now we both benefit from it. And I've seen young people do this, old people do this. I've seen people of every age do this over time, and every time, it is worth the investment of interest. Can I um, can I share a, a, a story that I've got kind of revolving around this? No, let's move on. Okay. I no, go ahead. Yes. So I was talking with a, a young woman uh, who was very distressed about some student loans that she was trying to work through. Okay. It was, it was fifty, sixty thousand dollars in student loans. Okay. A nice chunk of change. Mm -hmm. She was living with her boyfriend, who she assumed was going to soon become her fiance. Okay. 
I asked her if, if he knew about the student loans. No, no, not, not at all. Well, are you going to disclose that? Should we, do you want to role play this? No. Or are you going to tell him about it? Uh, should I? Yes. But, but no, it's not. Oh, okay, she, she, well, she, said, role playing. she said, no, I, I, I don't think it's his business and I'm not going to tell him about it. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. Yeah. That's not a great way. And I explained to her that that's not a great way to start a long-term relationship that, well, it's already been, uh, I'm assuming a long-term relationship to that point, but, um, hiding stuff like that, going into a commitment like marriage, whether or not you intend to take care of all that debt yourself is not something you leave locked behind a door somewhere. All right. So there, I, I have theories. I think this is a byproduct of two separate things. Number one, I think it's a byproduct of the increased amount of student loan debt. I, I think it's like everywhere you look, you see, you know, little scars and blemishes that that happen because of the increased amount of student loan debt. So that's number one. I just slapped my hand on the desk and that hurt. There might be blood. Number two, um, I think it's because people are getting married a little bit later mm -hmm. than they used to. Mm -hmm. And so they live these adult lives that have ramifications and consequences. Mm -hmm. So what ended up happening? Do you know? Um, <laughs> you don't, you can't I, say too much, but I can't. I, okay. The don't. She, she, she saw my side of the issue, whether or not she was going to follow through and have that conversation with them. I yeah. don't know. I just think, and look, I, it's really easy for two guys who've been married for a long time to other people mm -hmm. separately, um, to say, Oh, this is what you should do. And, and I'm not financially perfect, and I'm not financially perfect when it comes to my marriage. I've made bad financial decisions, nothing terrible, but no bad decisions mm -hmm. here and there, and and uh, I'm not here to say whether she has or not. <laughs> uh, actually, she hasn't. Um, but I think going in and saying, do you know how stressful it would be to start this relationship deep in debt with no savings? We're getting engaged, which means we're going to have to buy a ring um, <laughs> culturally. You don't have to buy a ring. I know plenty of people who, who haven't bought a ring because they didn't have the money to do it, but most people listen to the, the jewelry commercials and end up uh, with a, a store credit card. Oh, yeah. yeah, I don't know. I just think that's, uh, that's a really nice thing that Nathan did, and, and, and I have no reason to think that his fiance also wasn't a part of it. Yeah, you know? yeah I, I would like to think so. That's interesting. You know, I, for Valentine's Day, we should have done like the biggest acts of financial love. You know, next like, year. You want to do it next, next year? year? Will you remind me? Sure. I'll put it in my calendar. <laughs> Putting it in right now. I mean, but, but think about when you talk to people on the phone, like the case you just talked about, whether that was through your money line or not, I don't know. Um, relationships and money are a big deal, and it's that lack of stability that causes the stress. Yeah. If um, there's something that's off financially in between a couple, it affects everything else it just does if you look at the top two reasons uh, that people get divorced money's one of the top two and the other one we're not going to give advice about on the radio we could uh, um, i'm dr pete westheimer oh, was that pretty good it was perfect now, i mean everyone knew what i was talking about perfect <sighs> all right here's what we're going to do we're going to come back we're going to do biggest waste of money of the week here in just a little bit okay we're going to do um What's the other thing we do? Uh, Current finance, financial yeah. events. Yeah, that one. Uh, in the next coming weeks in the show, we have uh, we found this thing where you can basically figure out your annual food costs mm -hmm. 
based on the age and gender of people in your home. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to add up ours, which again, are going to be exactly the same. Yeah. Diversity. Let's, let's slightly describe the oddity that is our relationship. You and I are not related. Not at all. We are coworkers. We are. We have the same last name. We do. We are the same age. Yes. We are both married. Mm-hmm. We both have children that are pretty much the same age. Yep. We kind of look alike. For better or worse. And we're not related. Not at all. And, and I refuse to do like the 23 and me where we find out on the show if we are related because at some point in time I would get like arrested for serial killings or something. And it would be because of that. Yeah, your tinfoil hat just came too. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's no tinfoil hat. That happens. People get arrested because of these things. Well, of course they've killed people. I haven't killed anybody. You've watched too much Netflix. No, this is true. This happens. I read articles. I mean, I don't spend as much on them as I used to because <laughs> of the internet. Oh, man. All right. So that's that is people are like, well, what's the deal with you guys? It's just a weird situation. Totally coincidental. Both in the financial world. Yeah. Both love donuts. Yeah. Donuts. Mm. Donuts. Damien is also going a year without donuts, which that's, is a challenge. I'm two months, almost three months in now. All right. Coming up after the break, uh, I'm going to have a donut on the air, and we're going to do biggest waste of money of the week right here on the Pete the Planner Show. I am Pete the Planner. Back on the Pete the Planner Show, this week's biggest waste of money of the week is... Oh, stalling. Uh, the Gucci Men's Distressed GG Canvas and Leather Sneakers. Uh, Damien, I'm, I'm not going to read some fancy description. I just want to describe the shoe to you. Now, you can see it here. I'm not wearing it. You can see it on the computer. It looks like an old-school tennis shoe, yes. like from the 1980s, like mm-hmm. John McEnroe would be wearing. So yep. it's a low-cut... It's got greens and whites, and uh, I mean, it looks like a Stan Smith, right? The classic Adidas Stan Smith. It looks filthy. Okay, so that's the thing. It, you buy it new, and it, we've all seen like distressed jeans mm-hmm. and distressed leather bags and these sorts of things. But this, this looked like you mowed the grass in it, and then you went in Grand Central Station with it on a hot summer day mm-hmm. during Rat Fest, I can smell 1987. It now. It, I mean, it looks like a disgusting shoe that, let, let's say that you go and visit your parents' house and you take off the shoes, your mom would just throw them out because yeah. they look like they're that bad. They're $870. The crazy thing about this to me is the, this sort of sneaker, this sort of like, oh, it's a, it's a nice low cut white sneaker. The key to a good sneaker like this is to keep it clean. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the holy grail of how do you keep it looking bright white so it pops with whatever you're wearing. This looks brand new like you've had it for 20 years. Yeah, I, I've i never understood this concept. I don't either. I mean, I get distressed jeans. They have some, like, fading on the legs. Yeah. I don't get, I, I like, I, it's old guy alert. We yeah. need an old guy horn. By the way, Gucci, feel free to change our minds. I'm a size 13. Um, I don't want to say my size because it's much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. It just became easier for employers to dump retirees' pensions. With no fanfare, in early March, the Treasury Department issued a notice that allows employers to buy one, buy one, I should read, buy out 
current retirees from their pensions with a one-time lump sum payment. The decision reverses Obama-era guidance issued in 2015 that have effectively banned the practice after officials determined that lump sum payments often shortchanged seniors. Uh, since the 1980s, employers have shifted away from offering defined benefit pensions, which provide a guaranteed monthly income for as long as someone lives in retirement. Instead, of course, as we all know, employers have shifted to uh, the 401k plans instead. Um, pensions, which are insured by the federal PBGC or the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, Guarantee Corporation, is case uh, is there in case employers go bankrupt. It still covers 26.2 million people across 23,400 single employer plans, but that number has been shrinking faster than it would naturally as companies close their plans to new hires. All right, Damien, let's let's cut through the garbage here. Obviously, the popularity of pensions continues to fall. Mm-hmm. Employers try to get out of those obligations as people live longer, and um, it's harder to find the, the rates of return that employers would need to have mm-hmm. to fund those obligations. I mean, just look at General Motors and Chrysler and anyone that has giant pension plans. They try to find ways out of those obligations. But now what we're seeing here is that these promises that some of these plans have made their employees, the government is making it easier for companies to come in and say, ah, we changed our mind. Yeah, which doesn't sit well with me. I, I understand why a company wants to do it. And the, the article points out a, a couple of reasons why they, they might want to do it as well. Um, I just feel uncomfortable having a company go back on a promise they made to somebody who planned their retirement around this benefit. So obviously I agree with you and you and I constantly are picking up um, the pieces Mm -hmm. from these situations. I mean, that's a big part of what we do here, but can I play devil's advocate for a second here? Go ahead. Okay. What if a company has to do that to survive? I mean, that's the real challenge. So anyway, uh, here's what's strange. As we're going through this segment, Damien uh, left the studio. <laughs> He's fine, everyone. There's no medical emergency. Damien had to leave the studio, so we will continue on without him. He's fine. No, really, he's fine. Okay, uh, how about this one? This news this week, 50% of Americans have maxed out their credit card. <laughs> that doesn't seem great. So apparently, the data coming uh, in a macro sense that people's spending habits is not good right now. 2008 was the height of the financial crisis. Um, Americans have added $26 billion worth of credit card debt since then. Uh, That doesn't seem like a good sign. We often talk about has the economy recovered? And in many aspects it has. Unemployment is obviously strong. Wage growth may be a different story. Uh, But we do see people consistently rack up credit card debt, and with lots of justifications. And here's the, here's the toughest thing. Just this week, Apple Pay came out. Uh, well, not just Apple Pay, the Apple Card. That's right. It's the announcement of the Apple Card. Apple, um, which, again, I always feel like I should say Apple Computers, but that's not what I mean. Apple just came out with a, a new type of credit card. And so it was one thing when you go to Starbucks and you use the app and you just hold your phone up to spend money. Now with the Apple Card, you're going to part with your money and on an even easier basis, which concerns me. Next up, drunk shopping is a thing. <laughs> Some of you are hearing this and you're going, yeah, I, I, um, I know. Uh, so drunk shopping, uh, what percentage of alcohol consuming Americans shop drunk? 
Well, according to this story from The Hustle, uh, 79% of people have made a drunk purchase. They've purchased something when uh, intoxicated, generally on the internet. Men, 78% of men have admitted to doing this. 80% of women, women be shopping. 82% of millennials have admitted to making a drunk purchase. Could you then, uh, from this, deduce that 82% of millennials have been intoxicated? I don't, I don't know how the math works. I don't know how stats work. 79% of Gen X have, and 69% of baby boomers admit to having made drunk purchases. Oh, the income levels are even more fascinating. Okay, are you ready for this? Uh, the survey, by the way, was uh, for... Of 2,174 alcohol-consuming adults. Okay, that answers that question. Uh, For people that make less than $25,000, 68% of people who make less than $25,000, according to this survey, have made a purchase while intoxicated on the alcohol. Uh, $25,000 to $49,000 earners, 73%. Here's what you're going to learn. These numbers just keep going up. People that make between fifty to seventy-four thousand dollars, seventy-eight percent of them have made a purchase induced by intoxication, and eighty percent of people who make between seventy-five to ninety-nine thousand dollars have made a drunk purchase, and eighty-five percent of people who make above a hundred thousand dollars have made a drunk purchase. I don't know what to make of this, to be honest. Um, the most likely professions that drunk shop the most people in the sports industry, 94% of people in the sports industry have made a drunk purchase. According to this survey, 92% in the transport industry. Oh, what does that even mean? That scares me. Cause now I think there's like drunk driving going on 91% of oil and energy. How about the least likely professions to make purchases when intoxicated riders 60%. Here's the thing, as a rider I can tell you why. <laughs> because they don't have any money to buy anything. You don't make much money as a rider. Artists 64 only 64% of artists have uh, made intoxicated purchases. Educators 68%, I get that. You need that to grade papers. Engineers 68% and finally retail at 70%. Short of the engineer side of things, I think the least likely to make these purchases when intoxicated are really driven by the fact that they don't make much money. Um, Okay, here's another point to this article. You're thinking, wow, really spending some time on this. It is a little bit interesting. Final before we uh, wrap the show up for this week. 34% of people who have drunk shopped have done so uh, affected by beer, 29% by wine, and the remainder liquor. If you ask me, I like to go with the trifecta and do all three. That's all we have time for on the show this week. Damian Dunn joined us this episode, most of it. Uh, I'm Pete the Planner. I'm sending you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in my budget. This is the Pete the Planner Show. (laughs) 